We're going to start with uh, three passages in Scripture this morning. Just so you know, uh, the elders of the church have asked me once a month to engage in uh, what has been called a hot topic. I was thinking uh, maybe a more biblical way to phrase it would be, what should we say to these things? Um, Things that kind of surface in our culture. And what do we think about this? And so anyways, we're going to do that. I've entitled this um, message, Be a Man. And uh, so I realize that half of you are maybe going, well, that's, are you not telling me? But, but everybody should know what that means when the Bible says that. And in fact, I think on Tuesday mornings, you guys engaged that, Bill, right, in depth and. the uh, So this might just be a teaser to investigate more fully what that actually means. And by the way, um, I really want to encourage everybody to come to the um, baptism, infant baptism class. Whether whether you're older and you don't have little kids, whether you have no kids, it's a pretty significant thing, and you go to a church that practices that, and so even if you're like going, well, this doesn't affect me, it does, and it's kind of a big deal, and you should know why we do it. And so I want to encourage everybody, we're going to, I'm going to take two nights, just so maybe many of you don't know this, we were at one time a Baptist church. I mean, the whole church has transitioned, and so we understand the arguments, and so it's important, I think, for us to understand what's going on when it comes to that. I'm going to read from 1 Kings 2, 1 through 3, then 1 Corinthians 16, 13 and 14, and then finally 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 14. Hear now the word of God. Now the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth, be strong therefore, and prove yourself a man. And keep charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Now, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, that all that you do be done in love. And finally, 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 14, and I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man, but to be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we, we do live in an era where the idea of being a man or being a woman has become such a muddled affair that I even feel, Father, standing in the pulpit a bit of trepidation, suggesting that there is a difference between the two. We do pray, Father, that we would look at your word, that we would understand it, that we would receive your counsel regarding these things. Help us, Father, not to be sidetracked or won over by the folly of the world in which we live. Help us, Father, to determine and follow a very strong and solid Christian life and worldview regarding all things, but this morning we speak of this issue of men and women, especially as it relates to their function in the church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I mean, I think on the short list of hot topics has to include what has just happened with the Southern Baptist Convention, ousting Saddleback church from its denomination. I don't know, how many of you know about this? Just so I get an idea, read in the room. All right, just so you know, Southern Baptist Convention, it's a huge denomination, and Saddleback Church, its biggest church, and they have removed Saddleback, essentially um, disciplined them out of the, out of the denomination. Saddleback was an impressive force. Over 90 churches in Orange County, tens of thousands 
of people baptized in that church. Fifteen campuses in the United States, four campuses internationally. Their impact has been massive, best-selling books by the pastor and so forth. Actually, in an effort to ward off this expulsion, their pastor highlighted all they achieved at the convention. He got up and said, let me explain to you guys what we've done. But it did not receive the desired impact. They went ahead and removed them nonetheless. So what was their great crime that caused them to be removed from their denomination? I think it would be a big deal if our denomination said Branch of Hope is no longer part of this denomination because of some behavior within the church. What was their behavior? In the spring of 2021, Saddleback announced its intention to ordain three women as ministers. Now, the Southern Baptist Convention's doctrinal policy states, and I quote, while both men and women are gifted for the service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by Scripture. The founding pastor, after citing the church's really astonishing success, kind of called out those who were behind their ousting, saying that they were bickering over secondary issues. Now, I'm not going to be unclear here on this issue. I think the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, was right in what they did. I think that arguing based upon how successful you've been, to get up there and say, but look how successful we've been, is the type of pragmatic approach to ministry that opens the door to compromise, creating what you might want to call a ministerial wagon that is hitched to the world. I mean, you want to follow the world, they'll figure a way to get people in your church. To argue that it's a secondary issue is really not an argument at all, but an attempt to, I think, sweep the real issue under the carpet. You just can't say, well, it's secondary. I mean, I guess I could argue gossip is secondary. Gluttony, is that secondary? I think those are secondary issues, but if somebody in our church started a gossip ministry, we'd have to go, well, yeah, no, it's secondary, but no, we're not behind that. Now, among the efforts to de-escalate the issue were, the th- were things like, well, we're, they don't say it this way, the watering down of the title, the title minister or the title pastor. I've seen churches where they have the pastor of parking or, or the ministry of coffee. No, don't get me wrong. I'm not belittling these. I don't want to violate what Paul says. You know, the I can't say to the hand, I have no need for you. But, but you are really changing what these words mean when you do that. Now, if you want to make it really clear to go, we're changing what the word means. Dr. J was not an actual doctor. <laughs> All right, so, okay, just so we're clear, neither is Dr. Dre. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure, I, don't know, I didn't check this out, but I'm pretty sure that Queen Latifah is not an actual queen. So you want to kind of take the words and make them mean something entirely different. Make that clear. But I do think that there's something bigger at issue here. There is a full-fledged effort to either ignore or entirely miscalculate what the Scriptures say on this issue. And when I say this issue, I'm talking about the whole muddled affair of men and women altogether. If there's no difference, then these passages don't make sense. If, if we don't know what the Bible means when it says be a man, then, then there's no point in even making the distinction. I dare say that the moment people, this has happened, people will come to our church and they'll like our church, you know, for one reason or another. But oftentimes, the moment they find out that we only have men on the elder board, they're not having it. They're going to find another church. It's a deal breaker. But let me tell you, friends, one is hard-pressed to find a topic that is more perspicuously biblical than the mandate that elders and pastors, sometimes they're called teaching elders, like I'd be a teaching elder, are 
to be men. And though I'm not going to dig too deeply here, I chose the opening passages, even though the, the two, two of them don't relate to the, the office of, of pastor, but I chose these passages but we, because we live in kind of a unisexual type era where our culture is seeking to blur the distinction between men and women altogether. But for now, we're going to primarily address the call of men to these defined ministerial offices. Does the Bible call men, and men only, to be pastors, elders, and even deacons? Now, I'm going to start off here. I'm going to make a very quick argument. And the argument is going to start off with implicit, and then it's going to go to explicit. I don't know if you know the difference. Implicit is something you see happening, but you're not explicitly told to do it. You just see it taking place, and you're and, and so be, the fact that you see something happening doesn't, in the Bible even, make it right or wrong. You just see it happening. Okay? Explicit is you're specifically told this is right, this is wrong. So implicitly, we see in the scriptures from the very beginning, this isn't something that just shows up later, that Noah was the preacher of righteousness and not his wife. In the Bible, we see that it was the sons of Jacob, not the daughters, who formed the 12 tribes of Israel, which was the Old Covenant church. In the New Covenant, Jesus chose 12 men to be his apostles. These are all implicit. We see that this is what the... Although... When Jesus does something, it seems to carry a lot of weight. Nonetheless, at that so far, we haven't seen an explicit. I mean, he could have just picked the 12 guys because they were closest to him or whatever. But so far, we haven't seen explicit, but that's coming. Paul, the Apostle Paul, when laying down the requirements for elders and deacons, indicates that they are to be the husband of one wife. Those are not gender-neutral terms. They are, they are gender-specific terms. Basically, what he's saying is elders need to be a one-woman man. To go right to the Greek, one-woman man, not a one-man woman for an elder. Paul then becomes very specific in his writing. And keep this in mind in terms of the value of context. It's a pastoral epistle is what it's been called when he's writing to Timothy, the young pastor. It details the very precise instructions regarding the functioning of the church. And here he writes, 1 Timothy 2, 12-14, and, and this sounds so unpopular today. See, people are already leaving. <laughs> Tell Dan I said that. Like I didn't even know I was talking about him. And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. Uh, The woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds on this. We could talk about it during Q&A. I suspect we'll have a very lively Q&A today, Uh, which I like. I want people, you have questions, ask the questions. You feel uncomfortable getting up to the mic, write it down, have somebody deliver it, write it down and run away. <laughs> but if you have a question, you need to ask that question. You know, we're not going to run away from this. We want to we deal with it. But here, my point isn't to get into the details of this passage, but to, but to recognize that Paul's argument is not cultural. It extends back to creation. For it was Eve. He, he goes all the way back to, to, the, to the creation mandate. And I bring that up because many people will say, and I'm going to give the arguments in a minute, will say, well, this is a cultural issue. It's just the era. But Paul's argument is not what's happening in first century Rome. His argument goes all the way back to the beginning of time. In another passage addressing worship, Paul makes a similar statement. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, but I want you to know 
that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, this design extends back before the fall. We go all the way back to Genesis. Then the Lord God said, it is, it's the one thing, by the way, that was not good prior to the fall of man. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make, a, I will make him a helper fit for him. So, so this hierarchical structure is not, as some would argue, the result of the fall. The fact that there you got this hierarchy is the result of the fall. And as the world is sanctified, the hierarchy disappears. Because it was before the fall. You understand the point here? In a world that was completely righteous, the hierarchy already existed. And so far from this being a secondary issue, the Bible presents this model from Genesis to Revelation. It may, it may be secondary in terms of you don't find it in creeds and confessions so much, but it's not secondary in terms of pure volume of Scripture. Now, <clears throat> you guys are quieter than you ever are. <laughs> Before everybody runs out, screaming chauvinist. And I've heard people say, Paul, I've heard Christians say, well, the Apostle Paul, he was a chauvinist. And depending on your um, etymology of the word chauvinist, if you look up chauvinist, uh, it's interesting because one of the places, one of it is, it's like, well, it's a reference to Jean Chauvin, which was John Calvin. So maybe he was a chauvinist. But that's not what it's come to mean today, right? What it comes to mean today is somebody who kind of views their kind of male position as oppressive over females and so forth. So before you run out, I want you to hear the arguments against what I'm suggesting here. And I do, I don't like straw men. I want to put together what I think are the best arguments against what I'm teaching, against what they, this, this view that's called complement, usually called complementarianism, this idea that the woman complements, not comp with an I, with an E, like it's not the, the women going, wow, honey, you look really good today, or something. It is the idea that they work together in a complement. I want you to hear these arguments. So that's what I'm going to do. And then at the very end, I'm going I'm to present why I think this is such a heated topic. And I think it's a heated topic because we have a dark and twisted understanding of what it means to be a leader. I think that's... When I back up and I'm like, the ego and the power and the control, when that enters into the room, everything kind of goes sideways. But here are the arguments against the position that I think the Bible teaches. And I think they can be distilled into three. And there might be more, but this is the major arguments. First, that during the time of Christ, and certainly before Christ, women were viewed as belonging to an inferior category, a category that actually would dehumanize them, and that ended with Christ. And women oftentimes were counted among men's possessions. You owned, you know, certain how many goats and cows and fields and your wife. So some cultures would actually present it that way, so we see the merit in that concern. But that's one argument. One argument is that at the time of Christ, women were an inferior category. When Christ came, that needs to be reversed. Second, during the period in which Christ and other New Testament writers lived, women were uneducated. And since that's no longer the case, it doesn't really apply anymore. It's, a, it's, a, it's an era. But now that there are more women in universities than men... That era clearly has come to an end. Third, the New Testament appears to present a number of women who are notably significant in a ministerial capacity. So it is argued that it would be unreasonable to conclude that they, these women, and I'm going to mention them in a minute, would not have been pastors or elders or at very least eligible for that office even though they didn't have it at the time. So those are the major arguments against the position that we draw from what we read from the Apostle Paul. 
uh, and they tend to be cultural arguments. All right, so let's dig into those a little bit. All right, so this, I, I know this feels more like a seminary class than a sermon, but we gotta, you got to understand what the Bible says. You know, so I don't know why I keep apologizing. <laughs> Phil, you're going to get on me for that, aren't you? You just don't like it when I do that. All right, first, those who argue that women belong to an inferior category, which, by the way, is very likely historically true, must also argue, if that's your argument, you must also argue that Jesus and Paul and others caved when it came to that view. When Jesus picked 12 men to be his apostles, I guess I could ask you, was he capitulating to the functions of a sinful culture? Was he kind of going, look, women are inferior, so I'm not going to pick one. Would Jesus do that? Is that the way he would function? Because it really doesn't sound like the Jesus that I read about in the Bible. Jesus was not in the habit of de-escalation when it comes to the habits and convictions of the world into which he was born he came in and he caused a ruckus. This militates against those who argue that he was merely being sensitive to the worldly ways by which he was surrounded. Some people will argue, well, he was just being sensitive to the fact that if he picked a woman apostle, it would not be well received in his particular culture. So he was kind of being shrewd. Again, not something Jesus seemed terribly concerned about. Let us not forget that Jesus was in the habit of giving sermons that caused many of his disciples to turn back and no longer walk with him. Like Dan a minute ago, just kidding. I have, when I read that this morning, I'm like, when is that going to happen today? At what point is somebody going to go, I'm out of here? But my point here is that, that Jesus wasn't afraid of the response of his culture. If Jesus thought, no, this is the way it should go, I'm going to do it. And if it costs me, it costs me. Also, if this was a major concern, if this was a major concern for Jesus, if it was a major concern for Jesus to go look at I don't want to be unnecessarily divisive in my culture. He never would have spoken to the woman at Jacob's well. That, I mean, we, take, we look at that and we read this discussion in John chapter 4 of Jesus and the woman at Jacob's well. And we don't realize how counterculture that conversation actually was. Matter of fact, the passage says that his disciples marveled at what? That he was talking to a woman. They, I mean, Really? But there are at least three reasons why Jesus should not have been talking to that woman in terms of the culture. One is she was a woman. Two, she was a Samaritan woman. Jews didn't have anything to do with Samaritans. And number three, her reputation was questionable. You don't have, you have you've had five husbands and so forth. Add to this, and the other position, if you're... The argument, I'm arguing for what they call complementarianism. The other position is egalitarianism. So add to this, as the egalitarians so eagerly point out, that Jesus actually does engage women in very significant roles. Now, if he were caving to the culture, why would he do that? If he were nervous about having women involved, why does he have so many women involved? As the egalitarians... I'm kind of rapidly point out. You can't have it both ways. You can't say that he was being sensitive to his culture while at the same time changing the boundaries of his culture. This point seems to die on its own sword. You understand the argument here? Second, and I remember we were on a family vacation and I was laying by the pool and a group of women came up and clearly they were Christian women talking and the one lady talked about how they have a new pastor at their church, and their new pastor is a woman. And, you know, it kind of got my attention, and I was reading a Christian book. 
And I remember holding the book up kind of high, like, maybe you'll see that I'm a Christian too, and we can talk, and I didn't want to dive bomb into their conversation. But basically, her quick argument was, I don't have a problem with that because during the time of Christ, women were uneducated. And that was enough for her. And since that is no longer the case, that doesn't apply any longer. I mean, you can see the logic behind that, right? Would Jesus disqualify someone from service due to a lack of formal education? Well, the scripture is not silent on that. Acts 4.13, we read, Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. I almost feel like that should be like on the doorposts of our seminaries. Trained and educated, but really the question is, have you been with Jesus? I mean, that's the real question. But the notion that women were excluded from these offices due to a lack of education or intellect is clearly inconsistent with the biblical record. That's just not the case. The women in the Bible don't fall into that category of, of simpleton. Priscilla, for example, is prominently mentioned along with her husband as taking Apollos, who we're told was eloquent and mighty in the scriptures, taking him aside and explaining the way of God more accurately. So yeah, Priscilla, this guy's preaching. She and her husband, and, and in, normally if it was just the husband, he'd be the only one mentioned, but it's always Priscilla and Aquila. And the fact that she's mentioned first most of the time means that she's probably the prominent one took him aside and go, look at you got to get something straight here. I think the idea, for example, and by the way, that has happened to me more than once. Where, you know, and, and, you know, a woman comes up and she's like, you know, Pastor Paul, you said this, but I don't think, blah, 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 blah. We engage in a discussion. The last thing on earth I should say is, you know what? Tell your husband, have him tell me. I'm not hearing it from a woman. We also have a clear account of Mary, remember Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus to hear his word. You think she was getting an education there? Probably better than the one you're getting right now. (laughs) There's no indication that the women surrounding Jesus and operational in the New Covenant Church were less educated than the men. There's no indication. Yet, we do not see them either occupying or called to occupy the offices of pastor or elder or deacon in the church. This naturally, I think, brings our attention to the final issue, women who are significantly contributing in the new covenant era in terms of the ministry of the church. What do we do with that? So the final argument is that women like Mary Magdalene, Phoebe, Priscilla, Junia, and others give a clear indication that women, according to this view, they're like, see these women, how prominent they are? They, it, then they jump and go, clearly, they can fill the roles of pastor, elder, and or deacon. After all, Phoebe is called, you know what she's called in Romans 16? A deacon. Right? Where do you go with that, Pastor Paul? That seems explicit. We'll get there. (laughs) N.T. Wright, and I pick N.T. Wright because he's probably the most scholarly, and yet I think, in my view, kind of misguided, but scholarly person. So I'm not finding somebody who is not a student. He's probably the most voluminous writer right now in terms of theological output, you know, and respected by a lot of different cultures, and so I kind of looked at what he said on this because he kind of holds that egalitarian view, and I'm like, well, he'd be the best guy to give that egalitarian view. He argues this. He argues that when Mary Magdalene was told by Jesus to go tell the disciples that he had risen from the dead and would soon ascend, 
And he goes, you know, so the, the, the disciples are all hiding, right, in their little room. And he tells Mary Magdalene, go tell these guys that I have risen, that I'm going to soon ascend. The biggest news in the Bible, right? There's no bigger news than that. Wright argues that when Jesus did that, all bets are off. It was the most important message in Scripture. Jesus gave it to a woman. Therefore, women can be deacons, elders, and pastors. Now, of course, you need to understand this. No one is remotely suggesting that women can't tell people that Jesus is resurrected. No one is suggesting for a moment that that Samaritan woman in the fourth chapter of John was in sin when she went down into the city and said, hey, I just ran into Jesus, you know, and started telling everybody about what had happened and what he knew. But Wright, N.T. Wright, conveniently ignores what should be the obvious fact that Jesus didn't make Mary an apostle. See, you've you got to kind of recognize these, this idea that the Bible talks about churches with offices, pastor, deacon, teacher, we have an apostle. He never said, guess what? Hey, Mary, I'm making you an apostle. That doesn't happen. It never happened. What seems obvious, you know, and when, when I'm watching Wright do this, he's in a big room of people who all agreed with him and they all were applauding and everything. What seemed right to obvious, I guess, or uh, obvious to Wright was not as obvious to Paul, who years later wrote that elders should be men. Did, did, was Paul unaware of what Jesus told Mary to do? Then why would he say the elders need to be a one-woman man? N.T. Wright makes two more arguments along these lines, which I think reveal a methodology that, in my opinion, show him to be a very dangerous resource. I'm just telling you that as a pastor, that he reminds me a little bit of like a C.S. Lewis, where when he gets things right, he says it beautifully, but he gets some pretty major things wrong, and I think he's a dangerous, I think he's a dangerous person. And you're going to see here why, at least the way he approaches the Bible. He argues that Phoebe was a deacon. He just states it. Phoebe was a deacon. It's from Romans 16.1. Phoebe is a deacon. But he doesn't take any time or bother to explain that the word deacon, although sometimes referring to the office as a deacon, is just a word that means servant. So the fact that she was a deacon could just mean she was a servant. Matter of fact, we should all be deacons. See, that makes that's no more of a good argument than somebody going up to somebody else and going, well, you're elderly, you're an elder. (laughs) The word means something else, and he he just doesn't offer that. He just says it. Add to this, and he makes this assertion here. I just think it's unfounded. He makes the assertion that there was about a 70% chance, I don't know where he gets that, that Phoebe who we, all, we know delivered the letter from Corinth to Rome, the, you know, the uh, Romans. There's a 70% chance that she also read and taught what the letter meant. You know, well, he gives no biblical warrant for that statement. It is, little doubt, a conclusion he drew from extra-biblical studies regarding first-century culture. That is probably what happened in first century culture. People who delivered letters would explain what the letter meant. So he's taking what he learned about first century culture and it's going, well, she must have done that too because that's what they did in the first century. You see what's going on here? What he's doing, and I think it's a common practice and it deals with much more major issues, What he's doing is reinterpreting what the Scripture says based upon historical phenomenon rather than Scripture itself. I want you to tell me where in the Bible it says that. Interpret Scripture with Scripture. Don't reinterpret the Bible because of your extra-biblical information. Finally, Wright states unequivocally that Junia was an apostle. He just said it. Junia was an apostle, end of story. Junia being a female name. 
That's based upon Romans 16.7, and this is how it reads. Uh, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. You see how that reads kind of funny? Who are of note among the apostles. What, is that? what does he mean by that? Well, let me just tell you that both in the English and in the Greek, that sentence could mean one of two things. It's not just a problem we have in the translations. It's right in the Greek as well. It either means Junia is a highly esteemed apostle, or it means that the apostles held her in high esteem. Either way, to say Junia was an apostle without any qualification is simply dishonest. You, you know, somebody's going to walk out of there and go, well, it's clear. I don't think that's, I don't think that's good teaching. Finally, as stated earlier, we have Priscilla, that she was involved in the correction of Apollos, did not make her a pastor or an elder or a deacon. Think of this now, and I hope you're thinking very critically. On the contrary, her obvious intellect, the fact that she was clearly an intellectual, theologically, militates against the idea that women in that culture were inherently unqualified due to the culture itself. That didn't apply to her. She was able to correct one of the best teachers in the Bible. So all that's not working. Well, I'm going to leave that for now, and I'm just going to say this. God calls men to lead. Perhaps people have such a strong and often negative reaction to that because we do have a dark and twisted understanding of what it means to lead. I mean, not to mention what I said earlier, we were all confused about what a man is and what a woman is and all that. But we also, I think, have a very dark and twisted understanding of what leadership is. I've heard many women, as I've done research on this over the years, give very agitated responses with this accusation of men wanting power. I mean, I've heard men say this on behalf of women. I've heard a lot of women say this. The problem with the men is they just want the power. And you know what? There may be some truth to that. I'm not denying that there may be some truth to that. But if people think if people think it's about the power and they want it, maybe there's something else going on here. We need to get the ego, the pride, out of the room. We need to be a people who go, thus saith the Lord. And not bemoan it and, and kind of walk away going, well, what was God thinking when he, when he mandated that? Man, this is, seems very dark and oppressive. No, we should view this, as, as, as David said, as, as, as gold around our neck, as something beautiful, this counsel from God. A true leadership, true leadership is not about glorying in power or control over the lives of other people. That's not true leadership. Many of you have been to a lot of weddings that I've done and I'm, I'm, I, I am not unclear when I do the weddings and when I do the, 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 go over the vows of the role of the man and the woman. I've done hundreds and hundreds of weddings, sometimes two believers, sometimes two unbelievers. I'll do both. I won't do a believer and an unbeliever. I think that's unbiblical. But, he, but even if I'm marrying two unbelievers and I, we sit down and I'm like, oh, okay, here's the picture that I'm going to try to paint in your wedding. That marriage looks like Christ and his bride, the church. And they're all like, you know, whatever. We just want to get married, just say whatever. You know, some, they just don't care sometimes. But it contained in the vows is the vow that the woman will put herself, literally the hupotasso is the Greek word. Some versions say submit, that she will put herself under the leadership of her husband. Now, you... I don't think it should be surprising to you that that statement is not warmly received these days. So I'll explain that 
and I could feel kind of like a shift. All of a sudden, the room in my office gets as quiet as this sanctuary has been. And then, that's, that, and that's about 8% of her. And then for 92% of the time, I go, okay, so she's going to do this. Let me tell you what your role is. You are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Christ lived for his bride. He died for his bride. The most important thing in your life, other than your faith in Christ, is your bride. The greatest measurement of your faithfulness is how you respond to her. And I go on and on and on. And I go, man, you got to live and breathe and wake up and go to sleep serving this woman. And then all of a sudden, the room becomes a happier place. (laughs) I feel like as soon as we understand what it means to lead, I'm going to tell you, I I, I don't know, but I'll bet you I've done 500 weddings once. There was one time where the woman said, I still don't want it in there. Every time, they're like, oh. See, the problem is we don't understand what it means to lead. We don't understand what it means to be the head. True leadership, I think, can best be described, summary by Jesus, the head of the church, who said this. And he's talking about, you can see in this quote, that he's talking about kind of clerical authority and what have you. He goes, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. You know what that phrase means, to lord it over somebody? Like, use your position of authority to, like, oppress them and, and kind of take advantage. They lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. You get the picture here, right? Yet it shall not be so among you. Now, keep in mind, he's talking, he's talking to those who would become the foundation of the church, as we learned in Revelation. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You want to know what leadership looks like? That, that's what it looks like. Now, let me very briefly, parenthetically state that in all of what we're saying here, we should not place some type of inherent superiority in one sex over the other. In, in his own image, God made them male and female. We need, we need to recognize that we are one in, being one in Christ, there is neither male nor female. It's not as if God is looking down on the earth and going, wow, the men really have it together, but not the women. It's not not an inherent inferiority or superiority that we are all the bride of Christ and we're all the objects of his love and affection. So, So none of this, and I'm not doing a good job, if you walk away, men thinking, well, I guess I'm better. Or if women walk away thinking, well, what'd you learn in church today? Well, I learned that I'm inferior. If, that, if that's what I'm saying, stick around and correct me. But it's certainly not what the Bible teaches. I've also chosen not to get into details as to why God has made these determinations, though at some level I think it's addressed in Scripture. Why, why would God have men and not women? I think it's, it's addressed in there, but you know, I'm already at 43 minutes, so I'm going to leave that for Q&A, but I will say this, even even if it seems arbitrary to you, even if I can't come up with a good argument as to why God chose men for these posts rather than women, I think it's a pretty low piece of hanging fruit for the fact that he did, even if I can't tell you why. And you know what seems arbitrary to me sometimes when I read it in the Bible? It seems arbitrary that you can eat of every tree, but not that one. He didn't even give some big explanation as to why. He just said, eat of any tree, but just don't eat out of that one. And so even if we don't know why, and I I do think there's some arguments to be made, but even if we don't know why, we need to defer to the wisdom and counsel of God when he says men should be pastors, men should be elders, men should be deacons. 
it might help if instead of looking at the way men are and bemoaning their inclusion and even incompetence, perhaps we should look at the way men should be. I think that's a really important thing. When I think when, when Jesus said, pray this way, our father. Okay, well, some people have a hard time with that because their fathers were not good people. So what you need to do is you need to read the Bible and go, well, what does a good father actually look like? What should a father be like? So instead of looking at men and going, well, I, the, all the men I know, they're not really very good, so obviously this counsel is wrong. What you should look at is go, well, what is a man? Prove yourself a man. Be a man. Be strong. What is that? What does that look like? The pursuit of biblical manhood. The lack of that, I feel, has been immensely destructive. And let me tell you, the women in the room, you know, and I don't want to sound overly paternal or, you know, pedagogical. You, you need to encourage this. You need to know what that leadership looks like. You need to know what that headship looks like. You need to know what that call is in their life. And you need to help them be good at it. Let me tell you, some people are just not very good at that. Some people are just not really good coaches. They're not really good at going, I'm going to help you be better. And you know how I'm going to do that? I'm going to do that by just ripping into you because of how bad you are at it. That's not good coaching. Wise, it's its own skill, women. Wise, patient, loving, thoughtful encouragement. That's something that you need to have high on your priority list. How can, how can I help my husband be a better man? And it's certainly not by abandoning them. It's like going, you know what, I'm just, you know, again, in weddings, you know, I'll talk to the, 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 the husband and the wife, and I go, if you're, if you're committed to love her the way Christ loved the church all the days of your life, and you're committed to trust him the way the church is called to trust your Savior, and if you both work hard at that all your life, at the end of the day, when the Lord brings you home, your marriage will be what it should have been. But don't abandon it. You don't wake up one day and go, you know what, honey, you had such a lame day yesterday, I'm done. Or the husband doesn't go, look, you're not willing to follow, so why should I lead? But those things become a death spiral. What does it mean to be a man? You know, in my preparation for this message, which, by the way, I've been preparing for about a month, (laughs) as you can tell by how long it's going, but... I came upon a female feminist pastor trying to paint Jesus as a, quote, five-foot-one, thin, curly-haired, weak, and this is, the quote is over, but I added metrosexual. That's what she, I mean, she was working hard to undermine the masculinity of Jesus. Now, let me tell you, I'm under the conviction that we shouldn't even imagine what Jesus looked like. I don't think we should have images of him. I don't, because we inevitably will create the Jesus we want, right? So I don't like images of Jesus at all. But clearly, she's like, this is the image of Jesus we'd need in our culture. You know, he needs, you know, he needs to look effeminate in order to even things out. Well, I'm I'm running out of time here, so let me just say this. I wrote down I'm running out of time here. (laughs) Thank you for your patience. I'm going to say two things I think that sum up biblical manhood, and it can be pursued obviously way deeper, but the neglect of which I think has opened the door to this widespread disobedience in the issue that we're studying, this issue of the role of men in the church. First, as I've already mentioned, It is servanthood. Men, especially in leadership, are called to serve. Whatever authority has been given to men should be used for the benefit of those they have authority over. People should love that that you have that role in their lives. 
they should love, whether you're a father, whether you're a husband, whether you're a pastor, whether you're an elder, I'd push it anywhere, whether you're a coach, whether you're a teacher, they should love that you have that role of authority. They, They should be glad, I'm so glad that I had you as that person in my life because you used whatever skills you had to serve me, and that was obvious. Second, men need to take responsibility. The elders of this church are responsible to God more than everybody else for what happens in this church. Hebrews 13, 17, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. When we talk to the guys about being elders, that's something I press with them. I'm like, you, you realize how daunting it is that God is saying, I'm holding you responsible for the souls of other people. That happens to a lot of people when they get married and start having kids. And they're like, oh, wow, I'm responsible for another human. I was playing fast and loose, but now I got this little baby here. I don't want to screw this up. What do I do? As a husband and father, I am the primary one that God will ask to give an account. Keep in mind that even though it was Eve who was deceived, even though it was Eve who ate first, Adam is the one that God held responsible for the fall of man. You saw in our opening passage the call to prove yourself a man, to act like men, be strong. In our current muddled affair regarding sex, we need to figure out what that means. If the foundations, even as we sang today, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So help us, Father, to assume those roles of responsibility in a loving, caring, serving fashion, recognizing that one day we will give an account for that which you've entrusted to us. Help us to, to recognize that as particularly as elders and fathers, but also everybody in the room recognizing that this is something that should be encouraged and done with excellence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.